Let's pray together. Father, uh, as we come now to um, investigate your word, uh, we ask that you would be here uh, teaching us, shaping us, uh, giving us clear understanding. Um, Grant us to articulate the questions that we need to be asking. Uh, Grant us not to uh, uh, do anything other than, than fully engage and that you would uh, teach us and be um, the, the, the beauty of our vision today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please sit down. And uh, it would be helpful if you would turn back to page 9, uh, the reading from Colossians. We're going to be focused on that last big paragraph, beginning in verse 9. Um, we're continuing our series in uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And um, there's a little bit of a, of a question that hangs over this series. We're going to be uh, in Colossians for most of the autumn. And the question that hangs over this series, we introduced it last week, is this question. What does it take for us to be a church that lives out Jesus' vision for the church? Um, we, I mean, it's kind of obvious. We want to be a church that Jesus likes, uh, we also don't want to assume that we are. And so what does it take to get us there? And uh, in order to help us with that, we have a vision statement. It goes like this. Uh, Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. Now, um, that's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, it may sound nice. It may be strange. But what does it mean? And even if we know what it does mean, uh, is, it, does it, is that what Jesus wants for us? Okay, that's the kind of questions that we're asking this autumn. And we're uh, letting Paul's letter to the Colossians become kind of a coaching document that helps us answer those questions and fill out what it means. So we started last week uh, in the first part of the reading from Colossians. And uh, we said, if you were here, we uh, made much of the fact that Paul says, Jesus has done everything necessary for our eternal joy. And we talked about how in the book of Colossians, the, that hope and that security and that confidence is meant to just be a foundation for us at a, as a church, is meant to animate absolutely everything else about us. What I want to show you today is that Jesus wants us to start with that rock-solid hope, but he also wants us to grow. He wants us to change. He wants us to be transformed. And the word that he uses in the gospel reading and that Paul uses in the epistle reading is the idea of fruitfulness. He wants us to bear fruit. Um, think about a seed. A seed... Uh, think about a, a fruit tree seed. It has all the gen genetic material necessary for it to grow into a seed. However, the fact that it has everything necessary in order to grow into a tree doesn't mean that it should just stay as it is. It needs to grow. Seeds are meant to grow and to change and to grow into trees, and eventually they're meant to bring forth fruit. And in Colossians, it's through Paul, it's as if Jesus wants to say to his church, listen, I've done everything necessary for your eternal joy, 
all the genetic material is given to you when you uh, became a Christian. He says, but now that's the seed. Now I want you to grow. I want you to bear fruit. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we grow? How do we become a church that bears fruit? And the answer is going to be this. Here's a little preview. We will bear fruit as a church to the extent that we share God's desires. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 9, that last big uh, paragraph in the reading there. Um, Remember, we talked about this last week. Paul doesn't know the Colossian church personally. He knows them by reputation. And so he's heard about their hope and their faith and their love that makes him full of joy. And therefore he prays. And we pick up his prayer in verse 9. It says this. And so from the day we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, Focus in on that phrase, the knowledge. He wants us to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What does it mean to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Um, I'm going to start with what it doesn't mean. Very often, Christians, if you've been around church for a while, you'll probably recognize this. If you haven't, then you won't, but you can just kind of listen in. Um, Christians have a tendency to take the idea of God's will, which is a big, robust, rich concept, and we have the tendency to shrink it into something little that is inadequate. And we often do that in at least two ways. First of all, the first way we often do that is that Christians often imagine that God's will is almost, we treat it almost like a horoscope. Do you know what I mean by that? We almost, it goes like this. Um, I need to know God's will so that I can know what job I should have, who I should marry, and uh, where I should live. Right? Some of you can identify with this, others of you can't. So um, if you were a Christian in high school, your senior year, and people said, what's God's will for your life? What they were asking is, where are you going to go to college? Right? (laughs) And you were stressing about it, okay? Now, I say that simply to say that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something bigger. Don't reduce it to that. Similarly, other Christians sometimes reduce the idea of God's will merely to commandments that we conform to. So the idea is, if I obey God, he'll like me, um, and therefore I need to know what God requires so that I can at least conform to the minimum, right? Right? Once again, that's a reduction of God's will. It's a, Paul's talking about something much, much bigger. It includes God's commandments, but it's much bigger than that. Look back at verse 9. When Paul talks about God's will, that word will, it means desire. It means what God wants. It means what God likes. He's praying that we would be filled, saturated with knowledge of what it is that God likes, what it is that God does not like, and that that would become an internalized reality. So he means, on the one hand, that we would have cognitive knowledge. You know, that we would, like, know with our brain what God wants, what God doesn't want, and those sorts of things. But he also, it's more than that. This is what's so important. It also means 
sharing in God's desires. It means desiring the same thing that God desires. Let me try to illustrate this. I've used this illustration before, but sorry. Um, when I first met Amber, I didn't like classical music. Don't tell her. Just between us. Um, I, I, I kind of liked classic rock. Didn't like classical music. However, when I met this very, very beautiful woman, I found a remarkable motivation to go to a class. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. I just found myself going to classical music concerts. Now, at the beginning, I didn't go because of the music, obviously, right? I was using the music, right? I was using classical music. I had other ulterior motives. Um, however, 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 I'll have you know, that at some point that began to change. At some point, and, and it was related to my love for Amber. By the way, if you don't know me, Amber's my wife. So, um, <laughs> Otherwise, that was going to get weird. Um, so as my love for Amber increased, at the same time, I began to love some of the things that she loved. In this case, classical music. And, and over time, I started to actually care about it for its own sake, and I, I started to get kind of interested in it, and I began to try to develop some skill in listening to it, even if I have zero skill in doing anything else with it. But the point is that very often in relationships, our desires begin to synchronize with the desires of the one we love. Happens all the time. Keep that in your mind and come back to verse 9. Paul is praying that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, both that they would cognitively understand what God likes and doesn't like, but also that they would actually join in with God in loving what he loves and even hating what he hates. And the reason that that's the very first thing that Paul prays for is that it is the key to our transformation. It's the key to fruitfulness. Let me try to explain this just a little bit more. Um, this is, may sound a little odd, but it is possible to use God in the same way that I used classical music. So, like I said, at first I used classical music to get something else I wanted, namely a date with Amber, right? Um, it is very common for us, particularly as we're first coming to know God, but not just that. This can happen with people who have been interacting with God and with Jesus for many, many years. Very often, we use God for that. For instance, I might uh, be gripped with anxiety and I really want inner peace. That's a good thing, right? Inner peace. And therefore, I may pray, and through praying, I may experience a little bit of of inner peace. That's a good thing. But it's not where the Christian life ends. Because you can uh, seek inner peace and use religion, but still not really know God, not deeply. Or I might have a guilty conscience, and in order to deal with that co guilty conscience, I might uh, start to uh, vigorously obey God's commandments so that I can look at myself and say, yeah, I'm a plausibly moral person now. But even that doesn't mean I know God. It may be 
that I'm kind of using God. God's kind of an attachment to my life. I want to feel moral or I want to have inner peace. And therefore, I attach God to my life, but he's not the center of my life. I'm not bound to him in love. Not really. I don't love him for who he is. I love him or I use him for what I can get. And the key is that in that situation, I'm still determining my desires. I'm still at the center. My agenda is still the main thing, and I'm using God to get a little bit more of what I want. Now, in one sense, it's, it's not the end of the world. That's often part of the journey. But Paul wants to take us much further, and Jesus wants to take us much, much further than that. Because according to Paul, a Christian, someone who has really come to know God, is filled with the knowledge of God's will. And that means that you begin to see that God's desires and God's agenda is better than, than your desires and your agenda. And I can put it this way, you begin to see that God's agenda is more beautiful, even than any agenda that you could chart for yourself. It's more attractive. It's more compelling. And therefore, the, the key transformation occurs when you freely want to desire God's desires. Or to put it differently, you prefer God's agenda even to your own. Now, how do you know that that's happening? Well, you know that's happening because it leads to action and it leads to fruit. Not just minimum requirement. It leads to a type of fruit and a transformation that impacts every area of your life. Look at verse 10. Paul, look at the result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Verse 10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then here's the key. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of of the love of uh, the knowledge of God. The point is, when you love what God loves, you'll want to do what God wants you to do. A couple of illustrations. Um, this week, I read about a man called Gordon Wilson. Uh, Gordon Wilson, in uh, 1987, he tragically lost his daughter in Northern Ireland in a uh, in an IRA bombing. And within hours after uh, this occurred, the BBC interviewed him. And in the course of the interview, I mean, he was, you can appreciate, he was just completely raw. But he blurted out spontaneously, he wasn't planning it, he just blurted out spontaneously his intention to forgive the bomber, whoever the bomber was. And he created a, a great stir. In fact, it was quite controversial. People like, what is he doing? What kind of father would do that? Later, he said this. Those who have to account for this crime will have to face a judgment of God, for which is way beyond my forgiveness. And it would be wrong for me to give any impression that gunmen and bombers should walk the streets freely. But whether or not they are judged here on earth by a court of law, I will do my best in human terms to show forgiveness. The last word rests with God. Now, here's a, just consider the situation. Here's a man who is in hellish pain beyond description. Why does he forgive? I'll tell you this, he is not just rule-keeping. 
This is not a situation where God's an attachment to his life and God's really useful for him to get something else that he wants. No, we're way beyond that at this point. And I don't know the details of Gordon Wilson's spiritual life, but Paul tells us that when we're filled with the knowledge of God's will, when we love what it is that God loves, and when we've internalized God's desires, you will want what it is that God wants. You will have internalized that God loves forgiveness. And if I know that with spiritual understanding, then I will want to forgive too. And that desire to forgive will be there even in the midst of hellish pain. Knowing God's will leads to walking out God's will. It leads to fruitfulness in spite of the cost. Let me give you another example, and this is much lower, lower hanging fruit, so to speak. Um, I, I know a Christian businessman who uh, had a consultant or a contractor in the office with him, and they sat down to a big meeting. And, uh, and in the course of the meeting, the business owner heard uh, the contractor making some jokes, and they were jokes at the expense of the, uh, of the Muslim community. And without thinking, the business owner found himself spontaneously saying, we won't talk that way in this company. In the middle of the meeting, <laughs> we won't talk this way in this company. And then, rather spontaneously, said something like, I'm a Christian, and I believe that Jesus loves and died for the Muslim community in the same way that he loves and died for me, and therefore we simply won't tolerate that kind of talk here. Which led to an awkward meeting. Now, why did he say that? There's no rule that says he had to say that. In fact, some might say it might not be the right thing to do in a certain circumstance. But what happened was that's the fruit of a heart that is internalized God's will and then isn't just rule-keeping but is able to see how that relates to the world around them. There's something creative about it. The Christian life is a little bit like performance art. We internalize God's desires. And then it's not just that we're keeping to the script. It's that we're embodying God's desires in every sphere of our life. Here at church, but out in the workplace and at home and in recreation in all the spheres of life. Obviously, however, you know the best example. You know what I'm going to say. The best example, obviously, is Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before, the night he was arrested? He knew what was coming. He knew that he was betrayed. He knew that he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to die, and he was praying. Do you remember what he prayed? He said, Father, if there's any way around this, I want around this. This is not my desire in one sense, but in another sense. Then he follows it up immediately with, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus himself had internalized God's desire so fully that he preferred God's, his father's agenda over and against his own life. Which is to say, the cross of Jesus Christ is the fruit of Jesus himself being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now here's the big thing. Jesus wants a whole church with that dynamic. 
not just a church that kind of leverages God talk and religion in the pursuit of our own agendas. There's plenty of that out there, and it's really easy for us to live that way. Let's not. But rather, a church that sees that what God loves is better than anything we love naturally, and therefore, we desire as a community to surrender our many agendas to his overarching agenda. And then we're engaged in the skill of learning how to enact God's agenda in every sphere of our life. Now, all that's meant to be captured in our vision statement. It's not just meant to be visiony mumbo-jumbo. Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. Seeing the beauty of Christ and reflecting the beauty of Christ. That's meant to capture what Paul's talking about here. It means that everything we, need, we do should be, in one way or another, seeing the will of God displayed in Jesus and then becoming students of God's desires so that we see the beauty of his desires, that we see that it is attractive and compelling, and that then we want to reflect that in our own lives. Not just because it's something that God is in a kind of totalitarian, angry sort of way imposing upon us, but rather because we believe that it is the content of human flourishing. So how do we get there? Because I'm not there. Are you? Oh, you are? <laughs> Look at verse 11. It takes divine power. Don't just work it up. It takes power. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You see, note that this is a prayer. He's not just saying, hey, work it up, figure it out. No, it's not perform up. It's that God's power must come down and change us from the inside out. And notice that he says it happens through endurance and patience with joy. That is to say, it happens over the long haul. This is not just a one snap your fingers, amazing experience, and then we're all good. No, it's rather an ongoing cyclical process. That is to say that we are filled with the knowledge of God, and then we live that out and bear some element of fruit, but then that increases our wisdom so that we see God's will more clearly, and we come to know him more fully and more intimately, and that leads us to further fruitfulness and further infilling and it's an ongoing process and it happens over the long haul and it means it takes endurance and patience don't give up but you know where your eyes are fixed verse 12 giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Now, here's the thing. Look at where he takes us. He takes us to Jesus. He says, do you want to know God's will? Do you want to be filled with knowledge of God's will? Do you want to be transformed from the inside out? Then don't look at yourself. Don't look right now at your career. Don't look at your uh, moral performance. Don't look at, um, at, 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 at the, the aspects of your life that you feel proud of or the aspects of your life that you're disappointed in. Don't look at those things for a minute. Look away from those things and look at Jesus. 
Look at what Christ has done for you. That's where you'll begin to change. Look at Jesus, who is not just your example that you follow. He is your rescuer. When he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, he was doing that in order to rescue you. Rescues are one of the most beautiful kinds of stories that there are, aren't they? And the remarkable thing is that if you belong to Jesus, then you find that you are in one of those stories. And that if you do not belong to Jesus, then it is an invitation to say you can be in that story. That God himself has reached out to us when we didn't want anything to do with him. And that he has done everything necessary to draw us into his kingdom. Where we know eternal joy for which we were made. And the Christian life is a matter of mastering that story. Always rehearsing that story. And the more you see the beauty of Jesus Christ, the more you will see the beauty of God's will. And the more you surrender to the beauty of God's will, the more that beauty will train you and transform you and shape you so that you reflect that beauty around you in every sphere of your life. And that will be the day, friends, when the seed grows to a tree that bears fruit. That's what Jesus wants for us. Amen? Amen.